This is Medieval Death Trip for Thursday, November 29th, 2018. Episode 61, Concerning the Invention of Chess. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. When I started working on this episode, Halloween had just tumbled down into the discount racks like autumn leaves, and somehow the sage and cinnamon of Thanksgiving has likewise managed to pass by, and we're already on to the nutmeg and peppermint of Christmas. Uh, It's been like some kind of weird time-stealing holiday magic. But a bright side, just as trick-or-treating is echoed and amplified in the elaborate gift-giving of the various winter holidays, The episode I started tinkering with back then has burst open into another little mini-series, like a Christmas cracker full of unanticipated podcast episodes. Our loose tradition for November and into December here on Medieval Death Trip is to do softer, gentler, homey, or vaguely nostalgic texts. Um, There's no medieval Thanksgiving, right? Well, there's Michaelmas, which Thanksgiving is thought to have leached a number of traditions from, But Michaelmas happens at the end of September, which doesn't work for us. So instead, I look for items that tap into my feelings about Thanksgiving, and those bleed on over into Christmas, thankfully. Uh, And they're all about traveling to visit family, and enjoying good food, and home comforts, and socializing in ways that can be delightful or exasperating, or both simultaneously. One of my family's chief bonding activities is playing games. A few years ago, I started to get into the board game Resurgence that's been happening for a while now. Growing up, we played a lot of different board games, but as my brother and I became adults, things shifted over to traditional card games and a lot of Scrabble. I mean, a lot of Scrabble. But I've been slowly introducing different new, quote-unquote, grown-up board games to my parents each holiday, and have gotten everyone pretty excited about the sort of softer, Americanized flavors of Euro games, so not the deep economic simulators or war games, but light strategy and placement games like the classic gateway game Ticket to Ride, or light narrative-focused sort of pseudo-RPG games like Betrayal at House on the Hill, and our reigning champ for family favorite, the zombie apocalypse survival game Dead of Winter. Evoking the theme of holiday gaming, Our text for this year's little holiday series will be William Caxton's The Game and the Play of the Chess, which is his adaptation of a body of allegorical discourse on chess as a reflection of or model for society. The root of this discourse is a late 13th century book in Latin by an Italian Dominican monk called Jacobus de Chassoli, which itself originated in Jacobus' sermons, in which he started using chess pieces to illustrate moral points. And the fact that the city he's from, Chesoli, has chess in the first syllable is pure coincidence, by the way. This book was translated by other writers into French, and Caxton is drawing his English version largely via the French, but making his own adjustments and additions. The Game and the Play of the Chess was one of Caxton's earliest works, dating from the 1470s, and indeed was one of the first books produced on the printing press in England. True to its roots in sermonizing, the book doesn't really tell us much about chess or how to play it. 
It's mostly a series of portraits of idealized social roles, you know, the duties and characteristics of a good king, queen, knight, etc., illustrated with examples from classical, biblical, and patristic sources. Many of these portraits you could read and, snipping out a sentence or two, have no idea that chess is involved at all. So, for this little holiday series of excerpts from The Game and the Play of the Chess, I've tried to pick out places where the game itself has more relevance to the discussion. And certainly that's the case for where we'll start, which is with an account of how chess came to be. One which has virtually no connection to reality, but is interesting nonetheless. Caxton is writing in late 15th century English, which we've done on this show before, and which means we don't have to use a modern translation. It's intelligible to a modern audience, um, especially with modern pronunciation, mostly. There's some obscure vocabulary, which for the most part I'll just gloss as I read with an or, like he wretcheth or cares. One big item to get out of the way, though, is the word play. In Caxton's English, it can be the verb, you can play chess, but it can also be, and in this text usually is, a noun that is synonymous with game. A play is a game. When we hear the play of the chess, we would probably think that means the gameplay of the chess, or basically how to play chess. But it really does just mean, as I take it anyway, the game of chess. Another thing which requires a bit more explanation is the use of the verb found or fond, which we'll encounter several times. The syntax around this verb can get confusing. This is found in the sense of to found a company, to establish or invent in this case. You'll hear it used at a couple of points in an inverted syntax. So, this play fond a philosopher of the Orient, which translates to a philosopher of the Orient fond or founded or invented this play or game. So, an Eastern philosopher invented chess, which is one of the few historically plausible statements in this account if you ignore the particular identity of the philosopher that gets assigned. But we'll get to the current theory of the origins of chess after we hear this medieval version. I'll start with Caxton's brief preface to the book, omitting the prose statement of the table of contents that's attached to it, and then take us straight on into book one. One thing you might notice in Caxton's preface is how he envisions his audience. He's not making a book just for the consumption of wealthy patrons. He has a much broader vision, and that, of course, is part of the political significance of printing as a technology and form of mass media and we see it present right here in its earliest days. This will also have ramifications for how Caxton renders the relationships among the different chess pieces and the social orders they represent, um, but that's something for later episodes. For now, let's start at the beginning with Caxton's opening gambit. The holy apostle and doctor of the people, St. Paul, saith in his epistle, All that is written is written unto our doctrine and for our learning. Wherefore many noble clerks have endeavored them to write and compile many notable works and histories, to the end that it might come to the knowledge and understanding of such as been ignorant, of which the number is infinite. And according to the same saith Solomon, that the numbers of fools is infinite. 
and among all other good works, it is a work of right special recommendation to inform and to late understand wisdom and virtue unto them that cannot be learned nor cannot discern wisdom from folly. Then among whom there was an excellent doctor of divinity in the realm of France, of the order of the hospital of St. John's of Jerusalem, which intend the same and hath made a book of the chess moralized, which as such time as I was resident in Bruges in the country of Flanders, came into my hands, which when I had read and overseen, me seemed full necessary for to be had in English. And in eschewing of idleness, and to the end that some which have not seen it, nor understand French nor Latin, I delivered in myself to translate it into our maternal tongue. And when I had so achieved the said translation, I did do set in imprint a certain number of them, which anon were depeshed, or distributed, and sold. Wherefore, because this said book is full of wholesome wisdom, and requisite unto every estate and degree, I have purposed to imprint it, showing therein the figures of such persons as long into, or belong to, the play, in whom all estates and degrees been comprised, beseeching all them that this little work shall see, hear, or read, to have me for excused for the rude and simple making and reduction into our English. And whereas is default to correct and amend, and in so doing they shall deserve merit and thank. And I shall pray for them that God, his great mercy, shall reward them in his everlasting bliss in heaven, to the which he bring us, that with his precious blood redeemed us. Amen. Book 1. This first chapter of the first tractate showeth under what king the play of the chess was founded and made. Among all the evil conditions and signs that may be in a man, the first and the greatest is when he feareth not, nor dreadeth to displease and make wroth God by sin, and the people by living disordinately. When he wretcheth not, or cares not, nor taketh heed unto them that reprove him and his vices, but slayeth them, in such wise as did the emperor Nero, which did do slay his master Seneca, for as much as he might not suffer to be reproved and taught of him. In likewise was sometime a king in Babylon that was named Evomerodoc, a jolly man without justice, and so cruel that he did do hew his father's body in three hundred pieces, and gave it to eat and devour to three hundred birds that men call vultures. And he was of such condition as was Nero, and right well resembled and was like unto his father, Nebuchadnezzar, which on a time would do slay all the sage and wise men of Babylon, forasmuch as they could not tell him his dream that he had dreamed on a night and had forgotten it, like as it is written in the Bible in the book of Daniel. Under this king then, Evelmeridoc, was this game and play of the chess founded. True it is that some men ween that this play was founded in the time of the battles and siege of Troy, but that is not so. For this play came to the plays of the Chaldees, as Diomedes the Greek saith and rehearseth, that among the philosophers was the most renowned play among all other plays. And after that came this play in the time of Alexander the Great into Egypt, and so unto all the parties toward the south. And the cause wherefore this play was so renowned shall be said in the third chapter. This chapter of the first tractate showeth who fond first the play of the chess. This play fond a philosopher of the Orient, which was named in Chaldee Exerces, or in Greek Philometor, which is as much to say in English as he that loveth justice and measure. 
and this philosopher was renowned greatly among the Greeks and them of Athens, which were good clerks and philosophers, also renowned of their cunning. This philosopher was so just and true that he had liever die, or would rather die, than to live long and be a false flatterer with the said king. For when he beheld the foul and sinful life of the king, and that no man durst blame him, for by his great cruelty he put them all to death that displeased him, he put himself in peril of death, and loved and chose rather to die than longer to live. The evil life and disfamed of a king is the life of a cruel beast, and ought not long to be sustained. For he destroyeth him that displeaseth him. And therefore rehearseth Valerius, that there was a wise man named Theodore Serim, whom his king did do hang on the cross for as much as he reproved him of his evil and foul life. And alway as he was in the torment, he said to the king, Upon thy counselors and them that been clad in thy clothing and robes were more reason that this torment should come, for as much as they dare not say to thee the truth, for to do justice right wisely. Of myself I make no force whether I die on the land or on the water or otherwise. As who saith he wretched, or cared, not to die for justice. In likewise as Democrion the philosopher put out his own iron, or eyes, because he would not see that no good might come to the evil and vicious people without right. And also Desorts the philosopher, or Socrates, as he went toward his death, his wife that followed after him said that he was damned to death wrongfully. Then he answered and said to her, Hold thy peace and be still, it is better and more meritory to die by a wrong and unrightful judgment than that I had deserved to die. The third chapter of the first tractate treateth wherefore the play was founded and made. The causes wherefore this play was founded had been three. The first was for to correct and reprove the king. For when this king of Omeridoc saw this play, and the barons, knights, and gentlemen of his court play with the philosopher, he marveled greatly of the beauty and novelty of the play, and desired to play against the philosopher. The philosopher answered and said to him that it might not be done, but if he first learned the play. The king said it was reason, and that he would put him to the pain to learn it. Then the philosopher began to teach him, and to show him the manner of the table of the chessboard, and the chessmen, and also the manners and the conditions of a king, of the nobles, and of the common people, and of their offices, and how they should be touched and drawn, and how he should amend himself and become virtuous. And when this king heard that, he reproved him. He demanded him upon pain of death to tell him wherefore he had found in and made this play. And he answered, My right dear lord and king, the greatest and most thing that I desire is that thou have in thyself a glorious and virtuous life, and that I may not see but if, or unless, thou be indoctrinated and well-mannered. And, that had, so mayest thou be beloved of thy people. Thus then I desire that thou have other government than thou hast had, and that thou have upon thyself first seniory, or governance, and mastery, such as thou hast upon other by force, and not by right. Certainly it is not right that a man be master over other, and commander, when he cannot rule, nor may rule himself, and that his virtues domain, or rule above his vices. For seniory by force and will may not long endure. Then thus may thou see one of the causes why and wherefore I have founded and made this play, which is for to correct and reprove thee of thy tyranny and vicious living. 
for all kings ought specially to hear their choreographers and correctors and their corrections to hold and keep in mind. In likewise, as Valerius rehearseth, that the king Alexander had a noble and renowned knight that said in reproving of Alexander that he was too much covetous and in especial of the honors of the world, and said to him, If the gods had made thy body as great as is thy heart, all the world could not hold thee. For thou holdest in thy right hand all the Orient, and in thy left hand the Occident. Since then it is so, or thou art a god, or a man, or not. If thou be god, do then well and good to the people as God doth, and take not from them that they ought to have and is theirs. If thou be a man, think that thou shalt die, and then thou shalt do none evil. If thou be not, forget thyself. There is no thing so strong and firm, but that sometime a feeble thing casteth down and overthrow it. How well that the lion be the strongest beast, yet sometime a little bird eateth him. The second cause, whereof this play was founded and made, was for to keep him from idleness. Whereof Seneca saith unto Lucille, Idleness without any occupation is sepulture of a man living. And Varro saith in his sentences that in like wise as men go not for to go, the same wise the life is not given for to live, but for to do well and good. And therefore secondly the philosopher fond this play for to keep the people from idleness. For there is much people when so it is that they be fortunate in worldly goods, that they draw them to ease in idleness, whereof cometh oft times many evils and great sins. And by this idleness the heart is quenched, whereof cometh good desperation. The third cause is that every man naturally desireth to know and hear novelties and tidings. For this cause they of Athens studied, as we read, and for as the corporeal or bodily sight impesheth, or forbids, and letteth otherwhile the knowledge of subtle things. Therefore we read that Democrite the philosopher put out his own iron, for as much as he might have the better intendment, or learning, and understanding. Many have been made blind that were great clerks, in likewise as was Didymus, bishop of Alexandria, that how well that he saw not, yet he was so great a clerk that Gregory Nanzans and St. Jerome, that were clerks and masters to other, came for to be his scholars and learned of him. And St. Anthony, the great hermit, came for to see him on a time, and among all other things he demanded, or asked him, if he were not greatly displeased that he was blind and saw not. And he answered that he was greatly abashed, for he supposed not that he was not displeased in that he had lost his sight. And St. Anthony answered to him, I marvel much that it displeaseth thee, that thou hast lost that thing which is common between thee and beasts, and thou knowest well that thou hast not lost that thing that is common between thee and the angels. And for these causes foresaid, the philosopher intended to put away all pensiveness and thoughts, and to think only on this play, as shall be said and appear in this book after. So, that's where, when, and why chess was invented. Except it's not correct about where, and it's off by over a millennium of when. And as for why, well, here we could say that the medieval European guess is about as good as anyone else's, really, uh, though modern scholarship has developed a few of its own competing hypotheses. 
The problem is that we have no good written evidence for the origins of chess, or really pretty much any pre-modern board game. Board games themselves are of great antiquity. We have Neolithic evidence for board games, which is kind of amazing if you think about it. They predate writing. I mean, board games, in contrast to, say, most sports and physical games, involve a fairly complex system of symbolic abstraction. It's one thing for mock battle play or mock hunting to evolve into team sports and contests of physical skill. It's a significant leap to abstract battle into pieces on a board. You get into murky and speculative areas of evolutionary psychology if you try to explore that idea much further, but it seems to me there certainly could be a case to be made that the development of board game playing was a driver of cognitive development, abstract reasoning, and even symbolic communication, rather than just a side effect of those developments. That said, board games didn't jump straight into abstractions of battlefield strategy. Archaeological evidence suggests that Mancala, or counting games, are some of the earliest, which, if you're picturing Neolithic humanity, games in which you distribute beans or seeds into different little containers is a less abstract play model of the social activity of apportioning food or planting seeds. And board games emerge as populations develop agriculture and permanent settlements, so that's a compelling connection. Next, you tend to see racing games, which could emerge naturally from the gameplay of a counting game starting to move pieces into and out of play. War or battle games seem to come a bit later still and can easily be imagined to develop out of elaborating the rules of race games. You might notice a lot of conditional statements in that little evolutionary history there, uh, and that's because we really don't know. It's very tempting to make that kind of family tree for board game types, but it would be rooted in unstable ground. Looking across ancient cultures, the game types are far from universally distributed, and there's no obvious evidence of progression. Europe and pre-Columbian America had no indigenous Mancala games, for example, and the archaeological evidence is hard to draw strong conclusions from, since there could well have been many Neolithic and ancient games for which no evidence would survive. Uh, a board might be drawn in the dirt, and the game pieces might be pebbles or seeds. We know of prehistoric Moncala games because the rows or pits for the board were etched into stone outcroppings and thus survive for thousands of years. But that doesn't actually prove that they were first, only that they were the best preserved. Compared to ancient board games like Egyptian Senate or the Royal Game of Ur or the Scandinavian battle game Tavel or Tobel, chess is a relative newcomer. You might think that would make its origins easier to trace and... Well, okay, it is easier than with those ancient games, but it's still not easy, and the origins remain murky. One of the most heated debates involves where chess began, since that becomes a point of national pride, especially since chess has become such a prestigious game. The majority scholarly view and consensus is that chess originated in India, though there is a small but vocal and partisan contingent that wants China to get the credit. However, the evidence for a Chinese origin is pretty shaky, and that for India is pretty strong. Dating is another problem. Again, the most widely accepted proposition puts the invention of chess at some point not too long before 600 CE, but some have argued for earlier dates, indeed as early as 3000 BCE, um, which is not well supported. 
A lot of these early claims rest on findings of small carved items that resemble chess pieces, but such interpretations are highly debatable. The year 400 CE is about the earliest possible origin point that isn't unreasonable. On the one hand, that's still quite old compared to most board games people, or Westerners at least, actually play today, but in the grand scheme of gaming history, chess is still a quite recent, practically modern invention. It spread into Western Europe through contact with Muslim Spain and Sicily in the 10th century, and along the same currents that brought Arabic texts and Arabic versions of Greek medicine and philosophy into the monasteries of the West. This is why much Arabic terminology remained attached to the game. Indeed, its name derives straight from those roots. One of the common Latin names for chess, and there are a few, uh, is skakus or shakus. S-C-A-C-C-U-S, which comes from Shah, the Arabic name for the king chess piece, though the Arabs borrowed the word from the Persians, who will be our next step moving back along the transmission timeline. Uh, Anyway, Shah then moves further sort of past Latin and into the European vernacular languages, giving us forms like Schach in German, uh, French Eshek, and thence into English, chess. As our etymology indicates, the Arab world encountered chess via the Persians, and the Persians preserved their own tradition of how chess came to their land. This can be found in a text probably composed in the 8th or 9th century CE, uh, though the earliest surviving manuscript we have of it dates to 1323. This text is called the Shatranj Namak, and it's also a text, not unlike our chess sermons, that is actively concerned with an underlying symbolic significance to the components of the game. It also totally views game creation as a major point of national pride, uh, which we don't see as much in Caxton, but which certainly anticipates the arguments around the origins of chess today. In this text, an Indian king, called in the Persian Dewasarm, who may be the 6th century Malkari king Sarvavarman, who would have been styled Diva, or Lord Savavarman, hence Dewa Sarm, this king sends the game of chess, or Shatranj, as a gift to the Persian king with an accompanying challenge to see if the Persians are wise enough to, as our translation puts it, discover the interpretation of the game. This has also been translated as explain the rationale of chess, or to discern the underlying truth of chess, which is not a particularly clear proposition. Um, and our text doesn't really help, although all the characters in it apparently understand what's meant perfectly fine. There's an element of it that seems to be, can you work out the rules of chess from just the board and the pieces, which is basically impossible to do. Um, There's no way to intuit how a knight moves, for example. Uh, And so the other side of the coin is the idea of working out what chess symbolizes. As I said, We see a little bit of both happening in how the story is told, Uh, but I think the key thing to recognize is the completely unquestioned assumption that, of course, the game is imbued with deeper meanings and significance that are there to be read as one would read the structure of a temple or the iconography on a coin or flag or, indeed, the figures in a dream. And from the earliest evidence we have, there has been a strong crossover between board games and the tools of divination and fortune-telling but we'll come back to that in a later episode. Right now, let's hear the Shatranj Namak. Caxton is on the later edge of what we might count as medieval, 
so why not balance that out with an 8th or 9th century text? Also, as you'll see, we get to witness the fictional invention of a bonus game in the second half of this text, and this is also a game that's still played today, so you can take my ancient game interpretation challenge and see how long it takes you to recognize it as its description unfolds. I'll be reading a translation from H.J.R. Murray's A History of Chess, which he adapted from Solomon's uh, German translation of the 1323 manuscript copy. There are a few points of uncertainty in the translation, especially in some of the statements of game rules. I'm not going to mark them out. If something sounds fragmented or nonsensical, it's probably due to an obscurity in the manuscript. So, here we go. In the name of God, it is related that in the reign of Kusra-e-Anushrak-Ruban, Dewasarm, the great ruler of India, devised the Shatrang with 16 emerald and 16 ruby-red men in order to test the wisdom of the men of Iran, and also from motives of personal interest. With the game of chess, he sent 1,200 camels laden with gold, silver, jewels, pearls, and raiment, and 90 elephants, of all of which an inventory was made and he sent Taktaratus, who was the most famous of the Indians, in charge of them. Moreover, he had written the following in a letter. Since you bear the name of Shah An Shah, or King of Kings, and are king over all us kings, it is meet that your wise men should be wiser than ours. If now you cannot discover the interpretation of the Shatranj, pay us tribute and revenue. The Shah An Shah asked for three days' time, but there was none of the wise men of Iran who could discover the interpretation of the Shatranj. On the third day, Wajurgmatur of the house Bukhtak rose and said, Live forever! I have not revealed the interpretation of the Shatranj until this day, in order that you and every dweller in Iran may know that I am the wisest of all the people of Iran. I shall easily discover the interpretation of the Shatranj and take tribute and revenue from Dewasarm, and I will make yet another thing and send it to Dewasarm, which he will not discover, and we shall take double tribute and revenue from him. And from that day none shall doubt that you are worthy to be Shah An Shah, and that your wise men are wiser than those of Dewasarm. Then said Shah An Shah, O Wajurgmitr, hail to our Taktaratus and he commanded that 12,000 dirhams should be given to Wajurgmatur. On the next day, Wajurgmatur called Taktaratus before him and said, Dewasarm has fashioned this Shatrang after the likeness of a battle, and in its likeness are two supreme rulers after the likeness of kings, with the essentials of rooks to right and to left, with a counselor in the likeness of a commander of the champions, with the elephant in the likeness of a commander of the rearguard, with the horse in the likeness of the commander of the cavalry, with the foot soldier in the likeness of so many infantry in the vanguard of the battle. Thereupon Taktaratus arranged the Shatrang and played with Wajurgmatur. Wajurgmatur won twelve games against Taktaratus, and there was great joy throughout the whole land. Then Taktaratus stood up and said, Live forever! God has bestowed upon you such glory and majesty and power and victory. Verily, you are Lord of Iran and An-Iran. 
Several wise men of India devised this chatrange with much toil and labor, and sent it hither and arranged it. There was none who could expound it, but Wadrigmatur, by his innate wisdom, has interpreted it with ease and speed, and has added many riches to the Shah Anshah's treasury. On the next day, the Shah Anshah called Wadrigmatur before him and said to him, My Wadrigmatur, what is that thing of which you said, I will make it and send it to Dewasarm? Wadrigmatur replied, Of all the rulers of this millennium, has Ardikshir been the most active and the wisest? And I erect a game, New Ardakshir, after the name of Ardakshir. I fashion the board of New Ardakshir in the likeness of the land of Spandarmar, and I fashion thirty men in the likeness of the thirty days and nights. I fashion fifteen white in the likeness of day, and fifteen black in the likeness of night. I fashion the movement of each after the likeness of the movement of the constellations, and in the likeness of the revolution of the firmament. Of the faces of the dice... I fashion one in movement in this likeness because Hermadzd is one, and he has created all that is good. Two I fashion in the likeness of heaven and earth. Three I fashion in this likeness because good thoughts treat of words, works, and thoughts. Four I fashion in this likeness because there are four temperaments of which man is formed, and because the points of the world are four, east, west, south, and north. Five I fashion in this likeness, because there are five lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, fire, and the light which comes from heaven, and because the divisions of day and night are five. Six I fashion in this likeness, because the creation of the world was in the six times of the Gahanbar. The arrangement of the new architecture upon the board I fashion in this likeness, because Hermods the Lord placed the things which he had created upon the world. The movement of the men in this direction and in that I fashion in this likeness because man's energy in this world is linked with the heavenly bodies, and the seven stars move in twelve fixed circles and fall when it is time for one to defeat and remove another, just as men in this world defeat and remove one another. When all are removed, it resembles man because men must depart from the world, and when they are again arranged, it resembles man because at the resurrection all men are made alive again. When the Shah Anshah heard this oration, he was filled with joy and commanded his servants to provide 12,000 Arab steeds all adorned with golden pearls, and 12,000 young men, the most distinguished in Iran, and 12,000 coats of mail with eight, and 12,000 belts with seven clasps, and everything else that is necessary to equip 12,000 men and horses in the most worthy fashion. And he placed Wadjurgmatur of the House of Buktak over them as leader at an auspicious season, and he arrived in India in good health by God's help. When Dewasarm, the great ruler of India, saw him in this manner, he asked Wadjurgmatur of the House of Buktak for forty days' time, but there was none of the wise men of India who could discover the interpretation of the game of New Ardikshir, and Wadjurgmatur received from Dewasarm twice the tribute and revenue and he returned in good health and with great ceremony to Iran. The solution of the interpretation of the Shatranj is this, that in it the understanding in particular is recognized as the essential weapon by virtue of which, as certain wise men have said, the victory is obtained by intellect. The principle of play in Shatranj is to watch and strive to maintain one's own pieces, to take great pains as regards the being able to carry off the opponent's pieces, and in the desire of being able to carry off the opponent's pieces, not to play an unfair game. The player must always guard that one piece which is most convenient for the move, 
and take care to move in a fair way so that he may stand blameless in the manner of good manners. So, did you work out what the game of New Artichure is? You have white and black pieces, 15 each. They move in opposing directions around a board and are ultimately carried off. This is the game of Nard, or Backgammon. The cosmological allegory applied to the game here was already well established at the time the Shatranj Namak was written, and has just been borrowed into the story. It's also a rather awkward choice of a game to present as the Persian invention offered in response to a new Indian game, as historically, backgammon is of much greater antiquity than chess, and also likely originates in India. Our Persian author does a fair bit better than Caxton in accuracy, uh, at least as far as being approximately right about the date of the invention of chess and in recognizing that it came from India. And the notion touched on at the end, that chess was made particularly as an intellectual challenge, has support in modern scholarship. My main source for the history of chess that I've talked about so far is an article by Michael Mark from a collection of conference papers called Ancient Board Games in Perspective from 2007. I have inherited Mark's own reluctance to make definitive statements, um, though that plays right into my natural temperament. Uh, He hedges on the date and origin, though it comes through pretty clearly that most reasonable and well-informed people accept the 6th century India claim. When it comes to theories of why and how chess came into existence, the hedging gets a lot stronger, and it's clear that there isn't as much consensus. Here are the chief theories. Uh, Some propose that it evolved out of an earlier game, probably a race game, since there's no evidence of an earlier war game in India. Some think it came out of mathematical exercises via the connection of the chessboard with magic squares and other systems. Some think it was based on Chinese astrological games and was meant to model the same kind of cosmological symbolism that we just saw applied to backgammon. The theory Mark finds to be most compelling is one that was championed back in the early 20th century by H.J.R. Murray, whose uh, book our Shatranj Namak translation came from. This is that chess was invented at a specific moment by an individual quote-unquote genius who used the 8x8 board of an existing Indian racing game, but created the chess pieces and the rules in order to model warfare, and assigned the pieces roles in the traditional Indian army, cavalry, elephants, which become our bishops, chariots, our rooks, uh, and foot soldiers, our pawns, led by a king and... Not a queen, but a counselor, which was a detail we actually just heard mentioned in the Shatranj Namak. Indeed, the Sanskrit Shatraranga, which is the root of the Shatranj of the Persian text, means four elements or arms covering the four chief divisions of the army. Now, I think we're rightfully skeptical of most claims about assigning the invention of something of even modest antiquity to a single genius. My own intellectual sympathies would incline towards the it-evolved-over-generations-from-an-existing-practice angle. 
but sometimes remarkable things spring nearly fully formed from one mind at one time, and there really is a genius. In this case, even if you don't accept the idea of one individual game designer, uh, it does seem probable that the game was developed within a singular context in a relatively short span of time. It may well have started as a vehicle for teaching battlefield strategy, though, as with all abstractions, the practicality of its lessons becomes less clear as the rules become more fixed and rigid. But there is apparently a good case to be made that chess was created as a kind of novelty in the Indian court and went on to take the world by storm. That part of the story I'll have to come back to later. Before we go, though, I want to highlight one other little detail from the Persian story, which is of the two chess sides being not white and black, but ruby and emerald. This is still the convention in traditional chess sets made in India. Uh, At least red and green chessmen are. Which makes chess uh, inadvertently a rather Christmassy game. Um, And I'll use that as a justification for this series, which has slipped into being a bit more of a run-up to Christmas uh, than the run-up to Thanksgiving it was originally meant to be. I'll also lean into the commercialism of the season with uh, adding game recommendations, um, but I'm going to start those in our next installment, since we've had so much content in this one already. I will conclude with an especially appropriate mystery word, or phrase as the case may be, Shahmat. This comes from the Arabic for the king is dead, uh, though again, Arabic is using the Persian loanword Shah for the king as chess piece. I find there's a peculiar kind of stealth to Arabic loanwords into English. I mean, they seem especially hard to recognize, unless they're recent ones. A few stand out, like assassin or algebra, but it's a bit surprising to learn that alcohol, elixir, magazine, cotton, and tariff all also derive from Arabic. Uh, Though once you know that, alcohol suddenly looks much more Arabic than it ever looked before. And Shamat, the king is dead was borrowed into English via French as checkmate. So the phrase check to the king etymologically really is king to the king and makes no sense. Also etymologically, check and chess are basically the same word, which kind of takes a bit of the wind out of the elite sales of chess if you think that crying check is just crying chess. It makes chess and Yahtzee have more in common than you might expect. I'll be back quite soon with the next installment of this little holiday game series for a bit more late medieval chess lore. Until then, you can find us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. You can get the references for this episode's texts and my board game history sources on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can email me there at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. If you're feeling thankful or in a giving mood, you can also help support us with the gift of currency via Patreon. You can find us there at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast or by searching for Medieval Death Trip on Patreon. Boy, what a sound. How I love to hear that old money clink, that beautiful sound of cold hard cash. That beautiful, beautiful sound. Nickels, nickels, nickels. That beautiful sound of plinking nickels. So, have fun in your various autumnal activities, indulge the competitive spirit within moderation, and thanks for listening. <laughs>